Hello, I'm Richard Dockra. I'm a writer and consultant helping people to stand back and examine the big picture of life, human beings, politics, society and ideas. I'm the founder and director of the not-for-profit Live Squared and the social change agency ChangeStar. In this podcast series, I want to challenge your views of how we, human beings, think and behave. Most of us have a completely inaccurate view of the creatures we are, and the truth, revealed by researchers over recent decades, is mind-blowing and could change how we think about our lives and societies. In each episode, I'll be joined by an expert psychologist to explore one of humanity's biggest hopes or challenges, including seeking global peace, tackling the spread of misinformation and preventing climate change. We'll ask whether each aim is realistic, given the creatures we are, and if we can't achieve them, what's the best we can hope for? In this episode, I'm talking to Professor Bill von Hippel about whether human beings are really equipped to cope with life in the modern world. We'll discuss how human beings have evolved to live in a world full of small hunter-gatherer tribes, not the connected complex world that we now have. We'll explore how some of the traits of thinking and behaviour that we've developed for life in that world can cause us problems and challenges in the modern world. And we'll ask what we can do to make the modern world more suitable for human flourishing. Bill is Professor of Psychology at the University of Queensland in Australia. His research interests include evolutionary psychology and social intelligence, among many other topics. He's the author of the fascinating 2018 book, The Social Leap, which explores how human beings have developed over time and the consequences of this for our lives today. Here's the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So the question we're going to deal with this week is, can human beings cope with life in the modern world? And I guess a good starting point for this might be to ask the question, what sort of world have we evolved to live or flourish within? That's a great question. And we don't know with certainty, of course, but the best evidence that we have is how modern hunter-gatherers live. And by modern, I mean people who are still living in the today's world, but still engaged in this very traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle that our ancestors engaged in and that all humans engaged in until about 12,000 years ago. And if you if you look at, at hunter-gatherers, they typically live in what we call fission-fusion groups. So these groups kind of small numbers of people, maybe as many as 50 or 60, but usually less, um, often 10 or 15 even. And they kind of go camp for a little while in a certain area. And then when they've either exhausted the local game that they can hunt or lost, exhausted the, the tubers and berries and things that they can pick, they tend to move on. And so that happens as quickly as every few weeks or as slow as every few months. Each time they move on, sometimes they split into subgroups, sometimes other groups come together. And so it's kind of this fluid social situation, but it's never large numbers of people. It's hardly ever more than 50, occasionally as large as 100. But these are people that you've known your whole lives, that your friends have known their whole lives. So it's this, um, it's a very different kind of world than we have today where A, it's a world of strangers and B, it's a world with seemingly infinite numbers. And so... One of the key things about that ancestral world is that, you know, humans are group living species. We're incredibly effective in groups, but we're not very effective on our own. And so a very strong part of our psychology is to try to avoid being rejected by our group members. If our ancestors got tossed out of the group and there was no other group willing to take them in, that was akin to a death sentence. 
And so the consequence of that is that big part of our psychology is to try to bring value to our group, to try to be special in our group. And one of the ways that we try to do that is we look for domains that we can make a contribution, domains maybe ideally where we could be the best. So maybe you're a better hunter than I am and you keep getting giraffe and I keep coming home empty-handed, but, but maybe I'm a better arrow maker than you are or a better medicine person, whatever the case might be. And so we evolved in this world where we're always seeking to try to be top in some way or, or contribute as much as we possibly can. And in a world where we everybody's known to us intimately, and even when our group breaks up and new people come in, those aren't strangers to us. They're people that we either know personally or that are known very well by people who are known to us. So the forming of bonds within these small groups and the ability to sort of show your place within it and prove your place with it is absolutely fundamental to what we've evolved to, to do. Yes, to, to fit in, to be part of a group, to form close bonds with people who we're probably going to spend our entire life with. And look, if you and I can't get along, you yeah, you are a great hunter and I'm a great arrow maker, but there's other great hunters and other great arrow makers and chances are good we're going to go our separate ways. And so it's not, you know, once we shifted to farming and you've been working your soil for years, I've been working mine for years, we're not going to get up and leave. You know, we, this is our land. But, but hunter-gatherers are nomadic and it's very different. So they don't have to spend time with people that they don't like unless it's family and they're kind of stuck with them. And they, when people disagree, they can split apart for days, months, weeks, years, however much they want, and then come back together whenever they like. So long as they're part of the same larger group, that kind of coming and going is very common. And how often would our ancestors have encountered strangers, though other people? Because that seems like a fundamental sort of area of this of, how we react to other people and to different tribes and we how we create in-groups and out-groups. And yeah. Would strangers in those sort of times have been a genuine threat or likely to have been a genuine threat? Yeah, absolutely. And so there's there's two kinds of strangers. So let's say that you and I are both Hadza, which is uh, one of the hunter-gatherer groups that still exists today near Lake Turkana in, in Tanzania. And so if we're both Hadza and I've never seen you before, which is possible because there's hundreds of them. And in those days, you're likely have been thousands uh, because they wouldn't have settled down and be farming yet. Those chances are that I could run into somebody like you that I'd never actually met before, but I could recognize immediately by your accent and the way you dress that you're, that you're an in-group member. And so I would be a little worried because you're new to me and I would probably tell you, and this is what we see in modern times and what anthropologists tell us. I would say, you know, I'm Bill, son of Arndt. And you would say, oh, I'm Arndt's cousins, brothers, for, you know, bup, 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 and we have a link. Okay, good. Now we know who each other are and everything's okay. It's a little nerve wracking until we resolve that. But if, if, you, if you don't talk like I do, if you have a different accent or even a different language, well, we immediately have a problem on our hand. And that problem isn't necessarily going to end badly because groups did come into contact and they often traded. We know that by, um, we can see trade goods that have crossed thousands of miles when those groups weren't crossing those distances. So we know that they were engaging productively and in friendly ways with other groups. And we also know that it was a source of intermarriage, which is good because it avoids inbreeding and it expands the gene pool. But we also know that conflict was super common. And the reason for that is that if you look at us, you know, we have, we have no biological weapons. Our muscles aren't very big, no claws, no teeth. And so we're pretty much easy dinner for any of the big predators on the savannah. But nonetheless, we rose to the top of the food chain before I suspect we were even hunt um, Homo sapiens, probably when we're still Homo heidelbergensis or maybe even Homo erectus. And so maybe as much as a million years, we've been at the top of the food chain. And the way the ways that we do that is through division of labor and planning and things that give our group emergent properties that other animals don't have. 
But of course, the consequence of that is that once we've risen to the top of the food chain and the saber-toothed cats and the lions and the leopards are no longer a real threat to us on the savanna, well, there's only one threat left. And that's other groups of Homo sapiens, Homo erectus, whatever species we are. And so we, we've come to have an automatic positivity toward our own group because we cooperate with them really well, but a very ambivalent relationship with other groups. We, we don't necessarily dislike them, but we're very prepared to dislike them if there's any hint of conflict. And presumably, one of the other aims that, that we're built for, if you like, is to preserve cognitive energy. So presumably then the reactions that we make to these things could be quite strong and quite blunt. This would just be my assumption in that our aim is to try and preserve energy. And, and the more we have to think about these things, it could be a life and death situation. So we have to make the decisions fairly quickly and make them reasonably simple, do we? Well, we have to make them quickly. We want to get them right. But more important than being right is being on the same page. And so we evolved to seek consensus in our knowledge and to seek consensus in our emotional reaction to that knowledge. So if your group encounters my group, if, if I think you're a threat and the, and the other member of my group thinks you're an opportunity, well, we're going to be easily decimated if you are a threat and we're going to have trouble taking advantage of the opportunity if you are because we're not on the same page. And so we evolved to very quickly seek consensus. And, and part of that might be through the kind of cognitive shortcuts that you were talking about. Part of that might be just particularly influential people in the group. There could be lots of ways that that happens. But you know, as a consequence, even today, we don't like it when we don't share emotional consensus with others, particularly close others. And so if I tell you a story and you're not outraged like I was, or you're not, you don't think it's funny like I did, it's upsetting for both of us that we're not on the same page because we evolved to seek that kind of consensus. And in fact, I suspect this is the root cause of all exaggeration. One way that I can make sure that you're on the same page that I'm on is to tell my story a little bit more extremely. And then of course it's outrageous or of course it's hilarious. It's whatever I'm seeking it to be. Now that would have happened in intergroup relations as well. When I see them coming over the horizon, if I think they're in a, th a threat, I might exaggerate the aspects of them that I believe cause them to be a threat. And that's fine in a way, because the most important thing is that we all agree what it is that they are. And then we can act as a unit. We can behave as a group because we're all on the same page. And so probably many times there was no cause for harm, but harm nonetheless ensued just because that seemed like the course of action or that were the preconceived notions that people had in those circumstances. But, but we know that wasn't a guarantee. We know that groups came together in friendly ways. It's just we also know they came together in very violent ways. And we see lots and lots of evidence of, you know, protruding arrows and all sorts of conflict evidence throughout prehistory. Could this be a reason for our tendency to conform to things? This desire to sort of seek coherence and togetherness as a group? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we think of conformity now in kind of negative terms, that you're a sheep, that you go along, that you're not thinking for yourself. But, but we're all sheep. We all go along. We all don't think for ourselves. We, you know, how, how many times have you said, well, let me just, before I get on the computer today, let me read the engineering manual and make sure I understand exactly what's going on in my Apple computer or my headphones. or anything. You don't do that because you count on everybody else to do all those things for you. So in countless ways, we rely on the wisdom of others, the wisdom of the masses, the wisdom of our groups, et cetera. And there's, there's both positive and negative ways to describe that same thing. But you know, if there's a group coming over the horizon and you seem to think they're a threat and you seem to have information I don't have, you could say that's just conformity to go along with you. But another way is to say, I'm going to rely on you because you've been a good, trustworthy partner for me for many, many years. And I have no idea if those people are a threat or an opportunity. 
And I think we'll come on to this a bit later, but it does open up the idea that some of the fundamental, I suppose, values that govern those groups are quite different from the ones that we're used to today. I mean, I just think of this idea of group cooperation and being able to sort of stick together, whereas today individualism rules. And therefore that overturns a lot of the things that we think about like conformity, which seem to be very negative ideas. But we perhaps we'll come to that uh, a bit later. Are there any other things from your point of view, which are some of the core traits of human thinking that we develop to live in such a world? I think you've already talked about conformity and some of these things about trying to reach agreement, but also being aware of threats in other people from difference and also being um, really keen to try and cement ourselves within a, within a group. Are there any other things? One of the last forces that, that goes along with all of this is that you know, on the one hand, we feel the strong bond to our groups, particularly when our group is in conflict with another group. But on the other hand, there's always, there's always status striving within our groups. And so imagine you and I and 20 others are, are all the men in our group. And then there's, let's say, 20 or so females. Well, she's going to choose one of us, right? If there's a single woman. And, and what it doesn't really matter if I'm great or horrible. All that matters is how do I compare next to you? And so if you're a schmuck and I'm not a complete schmuck, then I'm looking pretty good. But if you're epic and I'm even more, then, then I'm required to be even more epic. And so everything, um, social comparison is critically important. Everything is relative. And, and sexual selection, of course, determines your capacity to get into the mating game in, in order to procreate. And so when we're busy in conflict with other groups, we tend not to worry about comparing and stay striving. But the minute that external threat goes away, bickering is likely to start because all of us are in this kind of constant status jockeying where we're looking toward our competitors and saying, well, what do you have? How does it compare to what I have? Now, they didn't own things like we do in today's world. And in fact, the rules of what we call immediate return on hunter-gatherers, those, the, the ones who eat today what they kill today, they share everything. If, if you owned two spears, it's my right to ask you for one. So they're wildly interdependent and inter- interconnected in a way that doesn't make sense to us now. It's, it's as close as you can come to this Marxist maxim of from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That's, that's how they live because they have no choice. The, um, so they're wildly interconnected. There's very little autonomy, very little in- independence. But at the same time, you know, there's this constant striving this battle between us to try to hope that I might be the better hunter or the better this or the better that funny or something so I get the girl and not just you. And is your argument that we are basically the same creatures as this but living in a completely different world? Yeah so the good thing about humans thankfully is that we're very cognitively flexible. You know, we have this interesting animal where all other animals, they adapt their physiology to fit a very particular environment. So a particular butterfly might adapt to a particular plant and they co-exist with each other. The butterfly, um, you know, goes to the plant for nectar and, and the plant uses the butterfly to scatter its pollen to mate with other plants because of course, butterfly plants can't move. And, and they solve these things by becoming ever more specialized. Human beings are the exact opposite. We have this incredible domain general processor, and, but, but we develop cultural rules that allow us to become specialists in any environment on earth. And so the same cultural rules that allowed us to uh, learn to eat some certain plants or learn to eat some certain animals or go through an elaborate process in order to eat the sago palm in Papua New Guinea, for example, all those complex rules also allow us to change the way our societies run, so long as it happens slowly. And so the good news is that you and I are very prepared to live in a world of strangers. We're completely unfussed by it. We go out our front door and we encounter 
countless thousands, even millions of humans we've never seen before. And we all know how to interact with each other and not cause problems and then not be psychologically upset by it. But the same rules still apply. The things that made us happy in our ancestral environment still make us happy today. And some of those things are disconnects. Like think, for example, about the example where you're the better hunter, but I'm the better arrow maker. Well, I can't possibly be the best at anything anymore. If I get on the internet, my Facebook friends, whatever social media platform you want, there's going to be countless humans who are better than I am at everything. And so this desire we have to be the best, and once I pass up the Joneses, I set my sight on the Smiths kind of thing, it's now this permanent hedonic treadmill where it's just not possible to be the anythingist anymore unless you're briefly the for one heady moment, the best at something in this world. And, and so this is a, a source, I would say, of great dissatisfaction and unhappiness that wasn't for our ancestors. It just wasn't a problem. You know, there's like 12 skills that we need to do in order to survive. And there's 12 of us. I've got a good shot at, at at least one or two of them, right? I guess what would be interesting to find out is what are the things that we've been able to adapt to? And what are the traits that we've that we're just not able to shift. Are, are we able to give a rough idea of what that might be? Yeah, I think so. So let's take um, relationships as a really good example. You know, human beings are very altricial. That means that they require a lot of um, nutritional help from their parents when they're born. So, you know, baby wildebeest plops out, 30 minutes later, it can run away from a leopard or, you know, a lion or whoever's chasing it. And, and, you know, 30 minutes later, baby human is exactly as worthless as it was the, day, the moment it was born. And five years later, arguably, it's still a pretty worthless organism. It can't do anything. It can't fend for itself. It can't protect itself. It can't run away. And so human beings require an enormous amount of energy to raise. And so like other animals that require an enormous amount of energy to raise, humans tend to pair bond in order to do it together. You see the same thing in birds. You know, they're, they're all stuck, stuck in a nest somewhere. They, it takes mom and dad bringing a lot of worms or seeds or whatever the bird eats for a living in order to keep the bird alive. And so birds tend to pair bond, not always, but many, many species do that. And they often pair bond for life and human beings, socially at least do the same kind of thing. We don't necessarily pair bond for life, but we're, we tend to be serially monogamous. So in that sense, you know, we're, we're living the exact same ancestral world and it's a good fit and good relationships still make us happy. So there's wonderful data out of Germany, for example, where you can look at that they've been measuring people's happiness and their activities in life longitudinally for decades. And so I can look at you before you even met your partner. And then I can look at how good your relationship is. And I, I can see what happens to your happiness. And if you have the good fortune to get in a good marriage, you're happier the day you got married than the day you met her. And you're happier still even a few years later, because things just keep getting better. If you have a bad marriage, of course, it tends to go the other way. But you know, what's the threat to marriage? Well, in ancestral environments, one of the things that men in particular, but even valuable for women as well, could do was seek variety. Because if some random woman comes along and I switch to her, that I could get more people pregnant, I could have more offspring. And also, both for men and women, I don't put all my genetic eggs into one basket. Now, for our ancestors, variety was a pretty rare thing. There's not that many females in my group, and most of them are spoken for, or they're too old or they're too young. And so every couple of years, maybe I'll meet somebody new and single who's interested in me and I'm interested in them. And so hunter-gatherer relationships tend to last for a while and, and typically quite a few years. And then sometimes they last forever. And sometimes they, when this variety comes along, they split up. But think about human beings who have access to variety because they're highly attractive, either because they're really rich or famous or a movie star or whatever. 
you know, they can never stay married because variety is endless. You know, you, you look out your window, you get onto Tinder, it doesn't matter what whatever your source is, there's this constant stream of new people. Now, if we evolve to be attracted to variety, you, you know the moment you reflect on the problem that, that variety is by definition fleeting. You know, so, so she's new for the moment, but then a little while she becomes old and somebody else becomes new. And this is an enormous source of dissatisfaction for humans today. For example, people who live in cities are more likely to get divorced than people who live in the country. The rich and famous are more likely to get divorced than the poor and nobodies. And it's because of this problem with variety that made good sense for us in the past, but is now it's, it's just everywhere. And so we live in an environment where it's so common that it's, it's way more of a problem than it is a benefit. And does this idea of variety being a bit of a problem sometimes, does that extend way beyond relationships? I'm thinking just in terms of choice in itself, you know, the Barry Schwartz stuff, the paradox of choice. Yeah, Presumably yeah. in a consumer society, you could talk about that being a problem as well for people. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at our ancestors, let's go back 20,000 years. Nobody ever said, what's for dinner, <laughs> right? You dragged home a giraffe, I can see what's for dinner. And maybe mum brought in some tubers or some berries. Um, we're having two things. We're having that meat you killed or somebody killed and we're having those berries or whatever. So the food that we have, what about our clothing? We make it ourselves. It's a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. We just don't have piles of stuff. Now we not only have piles of stuff, but we also have piles of foods. We have piles of everything. And, and the Schwartz data is nice. It shows that, that people can find this kind of choice processes overwhelming and they can sometimes even make poor choices when there's too many of them. But it's also the case, there's some really interesting evidence that suggests that our appetite is driven in part by variety. And so if you give people, um, if they eat something until they're full, there's, there's a really lovely study, for example, where they had people who were amnesic, eat until they're full, and, and others who are not amnesic, eat till they're full. And then they presented both of them with a different food, one that they hadn't just eaten until they're full. And if you ask control people, you just had lunch, how much do you like to taste of this? Like kind of full, don't really want it. Amnesics who don't know they've eaten will happily eat that again. They'll, they'll start up another round if it's a new food, but not if it's an old food. So they don't remember you, much less what they've eaten. But they're no longer, if they, let's imagine they ate a bunch of peanut butter sandwiches. They're no longer interested in a peanut butter sandwich. Their body's telling them, nope, you've gotten all the protein and all the nutrients, fat you need from peanut butter. You're not hungry if that's all that's on offer. But if you, something else, sure. And so obesity is in part, now it's a multiple, it's a multi-cause problem, but it's in part a problem of variety. And, and you can easily introspect on this. If think about a time you've been out to a really lovely dinner, maybe let's just say for steak, sake of argument, it's a steak restaurant and you had this great steak, it's your favorite thing and, and you're full. And then they go, would you like to see the dessert menu? Well, many times you go, sure, let's take a look. You know, even though I, would, I couldn't eat another bite of steak, it's still sitting on my plate but I could potentially have some ice cream or a cake or something like that. And that's where variety beats us up in another way, because of course our ancestors modulated their intake in part by their lack of variety. This is fascinating stuff. And I think we've already started talking about life in the modern world and some of those challenges. I wonder if we could take a step back a little bit and try and characterize the modern world a little bit more. So we talked about what our ancestors world would have looked like. What are some of the fundamental things that have changed into where we are in the modern world and we yeah, we could list these forever but some of the things that feel to me are really important are the fact that the, you, know, you can have relationships with almost anybody in the world it's there's eight billion people here mm -hmm. you've got complexity of information and of of people there's the there's the need for cooperation beyond your small group i mean 
I guess the list goes on. But are there any yeah. other sort of fundamental things that you think are worth pulling out here before we start looking at this? Well, look, there's there's a lot of aspects of our modern world that are, that are so fundamentally different from the way that we lived before. Um, one of them is a, the good example you gave is informational complexity, but there's also sort of entertainment complexity. And so what we know our ancestors did is they sat around the fire at night because that's safe. Predators can't get them. You know, our, our senses, we rely on our sense of sight more than anything else, which only works during the day. All the nocturnal predators rely on hearing and smell, which they're way better at than we are. And so we're dangerous. It's we're in, in danger at night, but around a fire, we're not. They're they're afraid of the fire, and, and we know how to handle it. And so, uh, we've been handling fire since before we were Homo sapiens. We've been controlling it. So, what we what almost surely happened every night was, and, and the data are, are consistent with this with modern hunt gatherers as well. Is that at the end of the day, we gather around and we tell stories around the fire. That's literally our source of entertainment. And so life could be pretty slow and pretty simple and highly social because that's the source of everything. There's no books, there's no TV, there's no any of that stuff. And now, of course, all that kind of stuff exists. And, and the consequence, I suspect, is that you just become used to a faster-paced world. Now, this resonates with me because you know I'm almost 60. And when I was a kid, the world, there was no internet. Most of these sorts of entertainment didn't exist. The world was much slower. And as a for example, my friends and I sat around playing Monopoly for hours. And if you think about the game, it's incredibly inane. You roll a dice, you roll around, you go around and around a circle with following almost guaranteed rules, and, and you either get all the properties and, or you don't. But look at the kind of games that, that kids can do today. I mean, they're, they can be virtual reality. They're incredibly complex. They involve people all over. The, you can play against people all over the world. You can play with people all over the world. Now, all those things are big pluses, if you ask me. I think kids today are way more sophisticated than I was. They're, they're probably even smarter. This is probably part of the Flynn effect, this tendency for rising IQs. But they also probably are not as comfortable just sort of sitting and thinking on their own and being by themselves and not being entertained and not having anything going on because they're so used to that. I talk to my friends who are um, anthropologists who go into these small scale societies in the jungle somewhere or in the desert and and they talk about how people can happily sit around doing almost nothing for hours and hours and how they as the anthropologists find it incredibly dull like there's just nothing going on. But I think that that's happening every generation that that younger people now also expect a lot more than we did, you know, in my generation in the same way. So that's, it's an example of my, of information density that, that just never existed on this planet before. And can we draw a distinction between that just being a habit versus it being something that actually enables us to flourish, that actually we enjoy and we instinctively just like? Are you saying that, you know, obviously that it is a habit now that we've got into much more complexity and that's what we do, but are you saying that we would actually get more out of it and have more enjoyable lives if we did learn how to slow down again and, and be at one with our natural tendencies? Yeah. Look, I think it's a bit of both. And so the word boredom doesn't even appear in the English language till I think 100 or 200 years ago. So I don't think it was a concept prior to that. And, and it doesn't exist in many languages. There just is no concept for being bored. Now, I think that that doesn't mean that humans aren't at some level bored, but it's not a regular thing. It's, it's just a state of contentment where you're happy with your own thoughts. You might be sitting, you know, you and I go out to the water hole. We're hoping to kill something. We can't sit and chat or it's never going to show up. And so you and I just sit there for four or six hours with our spears or our bow and arrow, whatever we've got, waiting for some animal to show up, basically not saying a word to each other. And I suspect that we're largely content. 
Now, we live in a much richer world today. Human beings, by virtue of our oral storytelling traditions, have always had cumulative culture, but the process of that has accelerated dramatically. And so probably if you go 100,000 years ago, and then you go 90,000 years ago, that 10,000 years didn't gain a whole lot of knowledge. The stories that are being told, the weapons that are being used, the ways of life are probably much the same. And now you look at you know, just a few generations and our understanding of the entire universe has shifted. A few hundred years ago, the world's geniuses thought that this earth was the center of the entire universe. And, and now a fifth grade kid knows full well that that's not true, right? And so the density of information that we have is, I think it's an unmitigated good, but there's, there are psychological consequences for being in a world where we're so used to being entertained that we maybe can't sit alone. And, and in fact, the data show psychologically, when you bring people in, they don't want to sit and do nothing. Sitting and doing nothing is a, aversive for lots of people. It's an interesting point that you just raised there in that it's been about 12,000 years since people last had that sort of lifestyle that, of, of our ancestors yeah. that we're talking about. But it does seem to me that it's the last three or even 200 years, even 100 years, that this exponential change, this utterly unbelievable change has happened yeah. in our lifestyles. And it's almost worth studying that minute period of time as much as the foregoing 12,000 years, because Agreed. who knows how out of sync we are in that last 100 years. Yeah, everything has accelerated so dramatically with industrialization. If you look at kind of the big changes in the world, hunter-gatherers are very egalitarian. Now, they, if I'm one group and you're another, you have no human rights. My moral system doesn't apply to you. So I might trade with you, but I might kill you. It just depends on what suits me, right? Um, and so in that sense, they're very egalitarian, at least within their own group. Everybody has the same rights, setting aside this intergroup issue. If you then turn us into agriculturalists, you shift to this wildly hierarchical world where now you've got kings and serfs. You've got people who basically spend their entire lives as slaves. You've, you've incorporated this idea of inequality and its naturalness. People think it's completely okay. Whereas hunter-gatherers are, do not think it's okay. They, they cannot get their head around the idea. It makes no sense to them and they'll do anything to avoid it. And one of the best examples is um, Robinson Asimoglu in their book, why nations fail. Talk about how the Spanish, when they were trying to conquer South America, they first got to the area that's, that's modern day Buenos Aires. And they thought this would be a perfect place for a colony. We'll set up shop here. And they tried to subjugate the locals. But the locals were immediate return hunter-gatherers, meaning that they, they lived the kind of lifestyle we've just been discussing. And, and they could kill them, but they, would, they refused to follow orders. They just would not, they refused to be enslaved. And so they finally said, screw it, we're not making it work here. And they went farther into what's now Paraguay and they encountered a group of horticulturalists, people who grow their own crops. Now, those people were already used to inequality. They already had local nobles and lords who were running it over them and they're working hard at the bottom. What do they care who's in charge, right? It's, it's a hard life either way. And so the conquistadors easily killed off the local nobility, took their place and boom, colony done. And so you've got people who are, who are naturally egalitarians. Over time, once they start agriculture, they learn inequality. They become very used to it. It becomes very natural. And in our own case, it wasn't until the enlightenment that we start to realize that there are human rights again. If you look at the judicial torture, and like if you look at the Old Bailey as a for example, we've got such good records in the Old Bailey of exactly every trial that ever took place. Until about 150 years ago, you could not see a linguistic distinction between a property crime and a 
attack against somebody else, a, a personal crime. And so if you look at, at, at what they're saying about Bill for the crime, you can't tell if Bill stole a loaf of bread or stabbed somebody. It's not until about 100, 150 years ago that they start to make a distinction between harming property and harming other humans. And so it's real clear evidence that we had shifted out of this egalitarian world into a very hierarchical one where Bill as a serf is really kind of the property of the local nobility. And if you harm me, it's really a, an attack on him because now he's missing a farmer. It's, I have no personal rights as his serf. And then we shifted back into that with the enlightenment. And so we've kind of come back to where hunter-gatherers are, but with this added bonus, I hope, of being a little bit less tribal and a little bit more willing to broaden our moral circles beyond our immediate groups. It's a fascinating point in this idea that inequality almost didn't exist in the hunter-gatherer society. And the other thing you could align with that is this idea of system one and system two thinking, as Daniel Kahneman talks about, about, you know, the sort of the instinctive versus rational. And that it feels, correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like there was far less need for our ancestors for system two thinking, for that rational, painful, cognitive high level thinking than there would be for us today are we putting too much pressure on ourselves to do too much of this rational thinking today which is just too much hard work for us well it is hard work um and and it is the case that we we try to we probably do a lot more system two thinking than our ancestors did because our lives are more complicated and we're also trying to overcome our biases and so there's almost no more negative term that you can apply to somebody than to say they're prejudiced or racist or something like that right whereas if, if you went to our ancestor hunter-gatherer groups and said, you know, you're racist, you don't like that other tribe, they would go, of course I don't, you know, why would I? And so they, they, they're not trying to have attitudes that they don't naturally have. They're not, you know, those attitudes evolved for a reason. They, they served us well. And so all these automatic tendencies that we have inside us that we now try to push down and suppress sometimes in order to be egalitarian and fair, well, that wasn't a problem for ancestors. They weren't trying to suppress those ideas. They're like, yeah, let's go kill those guys. That sounds like good fun, right? And so it's just such a different world that we now have to engage in more system two thinking when we're trying to solve complex problems that our ancestors just didn't face. But we also have to engage in it a lot when we're trying to suppress the output of system one, which is telling us to be biased in some kind of way against other people. Fascinating stuff. I think this feels like we're coming to the core of some of the issues here with modern life. I wonder if we could just look at some specific aspects of the modern world that we perhaps have problems adapting to or where we might have what I would call almost like vulnerabilities in, in, in our tendencies for thinking. One example, perhaps to start with, that I'm thinking of is about pressures and influence from global communications. So a really basic idea would be perhaps advertising, in that we do have a tendency to conform to things and to, to take on certain types of information. And that if somebody wants to exploit that tendency, it's actually fairly easy to do so. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so remember, we we're talking earlier about um, social comparison and how I need to sort of be better than you in some way to, if the girl's going to come be with me. If you're better than I am in everything, I'm sunk. And so we're in this constant world of status striving. Now, status striving in the past would be, well, all right, Richard's a better hunter than I am, but his arrows are pretty crap. I'm going to learn to be a better arrow maker and then I'll still be valuable to the group. They won't kick me out. And there'll be someone who wants to marry me, who wants, who sees my value. But now we live in a world where, you know, what we do, our skill set is, is largely indistinguishable from 10 million other people's skill sets. So that's not likely to help me sell myself anymore. And so the easiest way to do that in the post-agricultural world for the last 12,000 years 
is just by the stuff I own. Because you can tell really well by looking at me, oh, Bill has lots of good stuff. He'll be able to take care of me and my offspring. He's a good catch. And so you can very easily sneak in under the radar and just show me some object that I have no need for, no desire for, but that looks like it's elevating you in status. And it, it looks like, oh, people really value you when you have these new clothes or this new car or this fancy apartment. And as a consequence of that, we're, we're very susceptible to these advertising campaigns because we do care a lot about status. It is super important to us. It's, it's how we get the girl. And in today's world, that tends to be things like money. And so it can put us on this hedonic treadmill where we're constantly trying to earn more money. Now, what's so interesting about that treadmill is if you look at how happy people are as a function of how much money they make, the, a paper came out, I think it was in 2019 in PNAS that showed that it's a steady increase on a log scale, like the biggest effect is when you're poor to middle class. But if you put it on a log scale, you can see a steady increase to making almost a million a year. You keep getting happier. And so richer people are happier than poorer people. The data are very clear on that point. And quite until you get quite wealthy, we don't know the super wealthy because hard to get them in the experiment. But uh, and there's not that many of them. But but nonetheless, you get happier as you get richer. But what's so interesting is if you now look at how happy Americans are, for example, or Europeans, because we've got good data from the EU and we've got good data from the States and we can track it over 40 or 50 years. When those countries have, have doubled, tripled, or even quadrupled their purchasing power, we've got measures of what their economy is like going rising up over the last 40, 50 years since World War II. And then we've got measures of life satisfaction that's completely flat. So why would it be the case that in any one time period, the richer people are happier than the poor people, but across time, there's no difference. Well, if you went back and talked to Bill in 1950 and said, Bill, you can have this color TV and it's flat, it goes right on your wall. You can drive this fancy car that could practically park itself. You can have all these things. Like, oh my God, I feel like the king of England. This is the greatest stuff, right? It would make me so happy if I could have that. I would tell you that. But now, of course, all of us have that stuff. And it, it doesn't make us any happier. And what that suggests is that the stuff that we want to buy and own, we, um, it, it's, it's not the, the stuff that makes us happy. It's having more stuff than everybody else. And so when everybody in society gets richer at the same time, it doesn't give any happiness benefit because we're all rising in, in wealth at the exact same time. And therefore, there's no one gaining in status. But when I'm richer than you in a current time point, well, now that's important to me and it gives me more status. And so it, it shows you quite clearly that all the stuff that we covet isn't really what matters. What we really want to do is just be better than our neighbors. And advertisers take huge advantage of that fact. And it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because if we all want to be better than our neighbors, we can't, we can't all be better than each other. So oh, there, no. there have to be some losers in this equation. There have to be some losers. And remember, the advantage for our ancestors is that I could lose you in one domain, but I could be a winner in another because none of us owned anything. And if I did happen to have two spears, you could ask for one of them. So what made us valuable was our skill set. And if we're nice people, if we're kind, if people want to be around us. So we also know from hunter-gatherers that when we look at, at, at the kind of decisions they make, the Hadza, for example, when they break camp, or the Aboriginal people in Northern Australia, when they're deciding on going on a hunt, they're much more inclined to go with the generous person who may not be as good of a hunter than they are with a really good hunter who's kind of stingy because they want people who share with them who are kind to them. And so those personal attributes were all that mattered. What's my skill set and how good of a human being am I? Well, now my skill set and my human, how good of a human being I am, I'm not saying they don't matter but they become second in our minds to, well, what have I achieved in life? How much money do I have? How prestigious is my job? They're the kinds of things that allow us to jockey for status in the modern world. 
are there any other examples or any other things that you would say are sort of aspects of the modern world that can cause us difficulties? I would say that the variety, remember we talked about relationship variety is one good example, but we also talked a little bit about variety with regard to food. Now, that's another big problem in today's world. Our ancestors never worried about being overfed. You know, what they faced all the time was famine. And so they have really, really good mechanisms that tell them when they're hungry, when their blood sugar drops, they can feel it. They know that they need to eat. But we have surprisingly poor mechanisms for telling us when we're full. And the things that we craved in our ancestral environment, because they are rare, are now incredibly common. So the clear examples are salt, sugar, and fat. Well, our ancestors, whenever they encountered food that had salt, sugar, and or fat in it, they ate as much of it as they possibly could because chances were good. They weren't going to get any of that for a while. Now we're going to live in a world where salt, sugar, and fat are everywhere. And if we eat all the salt, sugar, and fat that we can get our hands on, we've got a huge health problem. And so the, the variety that we have in our foods, the, the nutritional density of our foods are so much higher, and the fact that they're so easy to get. For a Hadza to get a good night, a, a good evening's meal is a day's work. For me to get a good evening meal, I walk 20 feet. And so those evolutionary urges that benefited us so much, our desire to eat those things, which drove our behavior, are now causing us enormous problems because we know that obesity is about 70% genetic. And so what that's really telling, you know, when I was a small child, nobody was obese. That's an epidemic that started in the 1980s. And so what that's telling us is there's something about our environment that's changed that makes it for those of us who have the wrong genes, it makes it really, really hard for us to not overconsume salt, sugar, and fat. And then the sad truth is, because we don't have good mechanisms to tell us when we're full, we eat too much. And then when we do decide to diet, our body's really well set to prevent that from happening. Our body's evolved in a world with constant famine. And so when I stop eating, my somewhere deep in my brain goes, uh-oh, there's not enough food around. Bill's in famine. We better slow his metabolism down. We better do everything we can so that Bill survives till he gets his next meal. They don't realize, no, Bill's doing just fine. He's just trying to lose five pounds. And so most people who lose weight put it right back on. And we now know that the reason for that is that their metabolism slows down. And so they they burn fewer calories in a day than they used to before they went on a diet. And we know that the more often you diet, the more your, your metabolism slows down, the more likely you are to end up obese. You know, so for example, we've got amazing data out of the Finnish Olympic team where they tracked people who had to wait, they call it weight cycling. People like boxers and weightlifters and um, wrestlers, for example, are all groups of athletes who constantly have to lose a little bit of weight to make a certain weight class. And they compare them to the rest of the Finnish Olympic team and we now track them over the next, the remainder of their life. And these weight cyclists, by the time they're in there, they're, they're the exact same body mass as the other athletes when they're 20, you know, they're made of iron. But by the time they're in their 60s, they're not only more likely to be obese than the other Olympians, they're more likely to be obese than the average Finnish person who never was an athlete at all. Because that constant dieting has slowed down their metabolism and now they're eating more than they need to. This is so fascinating. And I think it's, there are, it's amazing. It's a bummer, right? I was just yeah, it is. we live in this world with so much, but we can't necessarily benefit from it. And, and I think the other thing about it is that these are often things that we blame ourselves for or blame other yeah. people for as a failure of moral failure, as, as it was a failure of them as an individual or just being able to carry it through physically. But actually, this is just the way we're set up. Yeah, it is. It's a sad truth. And so a big part of the issue is our genetics. If you're lucky, you've got genetics that don't push you to eat all the time. You've got genetics that tell you sharply when you're full and you've got genetics where your appetites aren't very strong. If you're unlucky, you don't have those things. Secondarily, we now know that there's a variety of um, endocrine disrupting compounds that, we, that, that ecotoxicologists call obesogenic. And we know, for example, that 
Um, if you, there, there's some compounds that used to exist in, uh, in certain fertilizers and, and some household goods that they, they'll give it to mice and it causes four generations of obesity because it changes the epigenetics of the mouse. And so now every mouse has, has evolved to sort of put on weight when, it, when it's under this endocrine system that we're now falsely adjusting by the kinds of compounds that exist in our everyday world. We don't know if we have multi-generational effects with humans, but we do know that, that humans, at least in one generation, can be very sensitive to their tendency to put on weight as a consequence of these endocrine-disrupting compounds. I think we could talk about this for hours, and I hope sometime you might come back and talk a bit more about some other things on it. But I wonder if before the end of the conversation, we could talk a little bit about the political dimension of this, because I think there's some fascinating stuff to talk about there. The thing that brings to my mind is the idea that in order to be able to keep 8 billion people you know, vaguely cooperating and not all killing each other, is that you need some sort of infrastructure, some sort of systems to actually govern those people, some political arrangements which is a very different thing from what people would have had in our, our ancestors 12,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. These in themselves seem to create big issues for us. One of them perhaps being the balance to have between individual freedom versus rulemaking and conformity with a group. Is there anything we could briefly say about that as a challenge for human beings? Yeah, it's an enormous challenge. And we know that if you look at immediate return hunter-gatherers again, starting with what our ancestors probably look like, we know that they don't have any hereditary leaders. They don't have any paramount leaders, typically. What they have is momentary leaders. And the momentary leaders literally get generated in the moment when something goes wrong. And so you say, you, you come back to us and you go, there's a very scary group coming over the horizon. I'd like to lead a war party and let's go deal with them. And then we all sit around and talk about it. And we discuss it. In the end, we make a decision as a group. All right, yes, you're you're our best fighter. You go lead that war party and I'm with you, brother. And we go try to solve this problem. And now maybe three weeks later, there's a different issue that comes up. We need to get water. We need to leave. We need to do whatever. And we all talk about it and we form a new consensus. And now I'm leading the group because whatever the next task is, I happen to be better at than you are. And so it's just going to come and go. And people are, are literally leaders because others choose to follow them. You cannot make anybody do anything in this world because if there's one thing these highly egalitarian hunter-gatherers frown on us, other people trying to lord it over them. Now, once you've got people living these more stable existence, they're no longer nomadic and acquiring goods and creating hierarchy, we always see the development of these hereditary leaders. And it doesn't matter whether they're literally hunter-gatherers themselves, like we had, for example, in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, where they knew whether these salmon runs that come in where you can catch enough food to last you for a year and dry it out. And, and these hierarchical societies formed around who gets to control the best salmon run and who becomes the warriors to protect it and who are the workers to get it and who's the chief who's kind of in charge of all that and so these societies develop everywhere under these circumstances now you and i are very fortunate that we live in these established democracies that have come around as a subsequent over long periods of arguing and fighting that have re-emerged in our society but of course they're still incredibly complicated and we're still we now live in a world where we're dealing with out groups all the time that we kind of think about our country and as all one big group and, and other countries, another group and countries feel in competition with each other and the world can feel like a zero sum game, even though in truth, com- countries gain an enormous amount by cooperating. But at the same time, what also happens is, of course, nothing works perfectly. It never did. But now it's much more egregiously imperfect because we can see enormous amounts of inequality between the Elon Musk of the world and the rest of us, right? The people who happen to get lucky and smart and things really went their way. And so it can create an enormous amount of dissatisfaction. People can think 
well, we really need to fix things in this world. We need a leader who adopts my point of view. People can start to see other members of their own society as the biggest impediment to these kinds of achievements. And so it's, there's no natural political structure that we've evolved to take advantage of. And what that means is that it's like it's almost a constant battle if we're going to maintain an effective democracy, a liberal democracy where everybody gets a say and no group gets to lord it over other groups. It's that's not a natural state for humans. It's a very recent invention. It's a it's a great invention. It it, it works better than other systems that that we can envision right now. It probably won't be the best thing that ever comes about. But it's super easy for people to slip and say, well, I don't care about all that. I just care about effectiveness and a good dictator who can make everybody do the right thing and can drive us in the right direction has is enormously appealing to people. And it, because it simplifies things and because it appeals yeah. to their own particular thing. But from what you're saying, you know, the, the idea of democracy and of that sort of cohabitation, that peaceful cohabitation is just a constant sense of uh, negotiation and working things yeah. out. And it's an imperfect, it's full of gray area, basically. It's exhausting. It's demanding. It's frustrating. And I know that if we could just get a leader who saw things my way, not only would it eliminate all that need for negotiation and all that, but it also would, it, it is more effective. It, when, you know, when militaries are never democracies, we don't draw straws. Should we go over the ridge and shoot those guys or not? We, we create hierarchies because we know they work. And, and once we decide that we're going to lead this war party and you're our boss, well, that's not a, that's a hierarchy now too. And, and you say, all right, you go there, you guys do this. And we all just enact the plan. And so it's super tempting to think all I need is somebody who's just going to enact these plans. But of course you can, you can see what's happening in China today as a, for example, any system like that, that, that devolves enormous power to one individual is very susceptible to that individual ratcheting up their power levels, getting rid of the people who are a threat to them in the immediate layer below. And now I would say China for the first time in the last, well, since Deng Xiaoping is, is really at risk of imploding because they've got this one leader way at the top with Xi, and then you've got this empty space below him because he's been so effective at, at increasing his power beyond what anyone else has been able to do recently. And so systems like that, well, they work great while they're underway. You know, China is a force to be reckoned with, but they're at enormous risk when, when one leader transitions to another. And that's when we tend to see everything fall apart. And the democratic solution that we've come to is to have essentially temporary hierarchies yeah. Uh, yeah. that people have chosen for themselves, but with the with the guarantee that they can have the, their dissolution over a period of years and yeah. then have another choice. That's what we've come and to. It's messy. It's difficult. It's 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 problematic. And and amazingly, in America, for the first time in the last election, uh, first time in the last two hundred years, you see somebody who refuses to concede defeat. Like that was just a rule that we all followed because it was just a rule we followed. And now somebody says, "Well, no, I'm not following that norm." And and who knows what the new norm is going to look like? Who knows what the next election is going to be like? These. This precedent is not just happening there. I mean, you can see it in Hungary, you can see it in Poland, you can see it in lots of places where you've got these, uh, the Philippines, you've got these autocratic leaders who are just changing the rules. And any of these human systems are viable and work only as long as people actually adhere to them and support them, right? Because if they don't, yeah. they're only arbitrary systems. Yeah, exactly. We, we think that they have their own powers, but they don't. And so the problem is in the short term, I can say, all right, look, you're a jerk and you're not following the rules, but you're a jerk on my side. And so should I turn a blind eye to you 
you know, claiming the election's fraudulent when it really wasn't? Should I turn a blind eye to you got in the Supreme Court? Should I turn a blind eye to what all, what any of these world's autocratic leaders are doing? And that there's a strong tendency to do yet to, to do so. And if, when I look around the world, the people who blow me away for their integrity are, are never the opposition. Because of course they're fighting against that. It's always the previously loyal members of their party, people like Liz Cheney, who say, you know what? That that's this is unbelievable. This is not how our democracy works. You lost the election. You need to leave. And and her, her own party is attacking her for this. I mean, she's, you know, she and I may not see eye to eye on nine issues out of 10 as far as how to run the world, but but she's a leader with enormous integrity. And the guys on our side, well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, because they were fighting against the other side at the same time. It was never the temptation to just go along with the bad guy because he was our bad guy. And people like her are obviously super far between, right? I mean, she's most of the Republicans got in line behind Trump, even though they knew f- exactly that he was full of it. They knew full well that there was no fraud in that election. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the final question I'd like to ask is, what changes do you think we could make to our society to make it more conducive to human flourishing, given the creatures that we are? Are there some core things that we, you think we could do in terms of our society or in terms of even our own lives to fit the creatures we are a little bit more? Yeah, the, the one thing that I personally would love to see is it, it's not human nature to do, so it's not easy, but, but I'd love to see us putting aside our, our moral righteousness and our beliefs that we have privileged access to the truth. And by that, I mean the people on either side of any ideological divide. And, and, and there's just this belief, well, no, 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 what we're doing is not just better than you, but it's actually right. And if you disagree with me, you're immoral. And this underlies things like this cancel culture that we're seeing, where you can't have a speaker come to campus who doesn't see things the, way, the same way as you do. But it also underlies the inability of the two sides to compromise um, the, when, when you know, two political parties are trying to find a way forward. The, the infrastructure bill that just got signed in America is a good example. The, the Republicans have been wanting to sign it. The Democrats have been wanting to sign it. Both sides know that it needs to be done. It's needed to be done for a very long time. You know, here's this incredibly rich company, country with this terrible infrastructure. And yet neither side wants to let the side that's in charge get the win. They don't want that run on the board for this side. They'd rather kick that can down the road and let the country suffer so that the current person in power might become less popular. Well, this kind of thing is this sort of tribalism is ghastly and it's it's super hard to overcome and we do it in the sciences you know the climate scientists for example are partially to blame for the fact that they're that so many people don't believe in in climate change because what the what they're always trying to do is is pack is talk about well all the horrible things that are going to happen and they're utterly unwilling to talk about well there's going to be good things of course there's not a single change in this planet that's unmitigatedly good or bad barring some you know asteroids smashing into us and so you know right now greenland northern canada the entire northern russia is all permafrost nothing can grow there and global warming is going to open up an enormous amount of farmland now that doesn't mean that a global warming is a good thing but it does mean that global warming is going to have some positive benefits for people who, for, for ways to raise crops, for ways to feed humanity that we just currently aren't thinking about. And no one's willing to engage with those kinds of things because they're worried about sending out mixed messages. Scientists think, no, 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 there's lots of bad from global warming, so I can only talk about the bad. If I talk about the good, I'm just giving ammunition to the enemy. 
But that's not our job as scientists to, to give ammunition to one side or another. Our job as scientists is literally to do our best to predict what's going to happen and to talk about the causal mechanisms that are in this world. And so you ought to be saying, well, you know, here are the negatives. We're going to get these islands underwater. We're going to get more hurricanes. We're going to get all these bad things. Here are the positives. We're, you know, we're going to get to farm Greenland. We're going to get, and, and the thing is that if you had to get an, an upcoming ice age or global warming, anybody would pick global warming in a heartbeat. And in the last ice age, Ohio was under a glacier. How are you going to feed humanity with Ohio under a glacier, right? There's going to be this narrow band of the world that's viable. And so we, we, as scientists, we try really hard to think, well, what's the end goal of my agenda? And then how can I best persuade people? And we should not be doing that because in the end, we become untrustworthy. People start to doubt the arguments that we're making. And so I'd love to see a world where people abandon this our side versus their side thing. And I don't know how to get there. I have no idea because it's just not human nature. We're very tribal things, but where we could try to set that aside and just be more focused on, all right, what do we know? What will help us? What will help everybody? And how can we get there? If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the whole series from wherever you get your podcasts or via my website, richarddockra.com. While you're there, you can check out my other podcasts and books and sign up for my monthly newsletter containing interesting ideas and updates. Thanks for listening.